0: listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Gritty, Pressing, Gossamer. Heather Stebbins is a composer of acoustic and electroacoustic works with a background as a cellist. At the core of her music is a deep fascination with the inner structures and intricacies of sound. Whether they originate from an instrument, an object, in nature, or a computer, Heather uses sounds that strike her viscerally and intellectually, as the germinating elements of her music. Her music has been performed at concerts, festivals, and conferences in North America, South America, Europe, and Australia. She completed her doctorate in 2016 at Boston University, where she was a Center for New Music doctoral fellow and taught electronic music technology and composition. Let's start with Quiver.
1: Okay, so Quiver, yeah, um, that piece was written in the fall of 2014, Um, actually while I was living in Estonia. Um, in fact, I realized after the fact that all three of the pieces that I sent you were written while I was living over there. Um, Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk about that aspect later, um, if you want. Um, but yeah, so Quiver was the result of applying to Loadbang's Call for Scores. Um, and when I found out I would be writing a piece for them, I was really excited because they're, you know... Great musicians, and they play a lot of concerts, um, which is always wonderful. But was also terrified because that instrumentation, is very daunting. Um, it's
0: really, really weird. Yeah, so like.
1: especially with the voice. So it's baritone voice, trumpet, trombone, and bass clarinet. Yeah. Um, I'm really comfortable writing for trombone and bass clarinet because of past projects. Um, Trumpet, you know, and sort of like more orchestral settings is fine, but voice is something that I've purposefully stayed away from my entire composing career. Um, So when I got this commission, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to finally work with voice. I can't really avoid it. Um, Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, so the piece I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out, all things considered. Um, But yeah, it was a a real challenge to first figure out, you know, how am I going to balance this ensemble and do something interesting with it and make it, you know, a piece of music that's not a piece for voice plus ensemble, because that was something that was really important to me. I wanted to integrate the voice into the ensemble in a way that um, just made it another instrument rather than a soloist with a accompaniment.
0: Right, that would be conveying text because there's no text in this. No, piece.
1: there's no text, so that's part of the reason why I've stayed away from, um, stayed away from working with voice. Is I have kind of like a just a aversion to working with text for a number of reasons. Um, so the uh, the vocalizations in this piece are mostly phonemes um, that I chose based on sort of timbral things rather than any sort of you know other extra musical meanings Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. you know when I first when I first started listening to this I didn't look at um I didn't look at your website to see like who it was written for or Mm -hmm. anything like that and uh I opened it and I thought wow this is this is a really interesting piece for trumpet and female singer yeah (laughs) I mean, Jeff is amazing. Yeah, he's like, ridiculous. I I had yeah. the I had the opportunity to work with them as part of a festival, and I got to write I got to write a piece for them too, mm-hmm. and you know have kind of kept in touch a little bit with them. They were they were down in Houston to do a concert, and you know I got to hang out with them again. But but Jeff's voice is just <laughs> really incredible, you know. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder, are you know, are there that many other baritones that really feel like they can take on the challenge of doing what he does.
1: I don't think so. And that's, I mean, that's another thing with that piece. It was definitely written with Jeff's voice in mind. Um, right. so like I said, I was living in Estonia while I was there, so I wasn't really able to work with him outside of we did one Skype session, um, and just email. Um, so really the first time I, I heard heard the piece, um, was via recording because they, mm-hmm. they premiered it while I was abroad Um, and I still haven't heard it live. Um, so, I mean, when I was imagining the piece and how his sort of his voice would go, it was a lot of my own vocalizations and Uh obviously my voice is in a higher register. Um, that's not to say I wrote the piece, you know, or I used a higher register in the piece for that purpose. Like it was sort of like a, a musical thing that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, he totally nailed it and I, highly doubt any other ensemble could could pull pull it off
0: how does quiver the title relate to the I mean relate to the musical materials
1: um so the concept of the piece came from uh, a trip I took to Iceland in the spring of 2014 um just after I found out I was going to be writing the piece and there's an area in um in the country where the North American and Europe or European plates meet, and the ground is just like really fractured. Um, and you, I mean, you see it's, it's just got veins running through it. Um, really rocky, um, just like incredibly active, but it's so slow moving. Obviously you can't see it. This has taken, you know, eons for these plates to meet. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, that landscape really stuck with me. And kind of the this idea of a really slow moving energy that's underneath, buried under the surface, um, was really important to me in the piece, and that's where I got the title from. Um, nothing more <laughs> meaningful <laughs> than that. Um, but yeah, so so it's kind of the the concept of the piece came for came from that um, that landscape, and the title came later, just as a way to sort of describe it.
2: No,
0: Is landscape or geography or geology something that you often go to? Because just looking at your your website and your SoundCloud, it seems like a lot of the the uh, images you choose to accompany the music are often like landscape or the, a certain place or something happening with the earth. Is that is that something you go to?
1: Definitely. Um, so this is actually something I thought we'd touch on with another piece, but I think it's important to talk about now because it's, it's really kind of a defining characteristic of what I'm trying to do. Um, and I didn't really figure this out until I guess a couple years ago, I took a course on music and landscape, which is kind of like a new branch of newish branch of musicology, um, that's coming about eco musicology as they call it. Um, and had a really fantastic professor, um, run this course. And it, it kind of made me realize that this sort of like the sense of place is really important to me just in general. And I think that music, um, can really put you in a place, whether that place is physical or sort of more in, in one subconscious. Um, and this idea of landscape, I, I kind of found, found an analogy, um, to what I want to do musically. Um, if, just bear with me. It's sort of like if landscape is kind of like the human control of nature, music is sort of the same with sound, at least the way I want my music to be and to kind of be like a a living, breathing place. Um, so that each piece kind of has a habitat for lack of a better word. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, I think it's something that is really important in my music. Um, and you know going to these sort of like more natural modes of inspiration um i've definitely done since i started composing and i've i've worked with other sort of like catalysts for piece starters but these sort of ones that that bring me back to a place that have been the ones that i think lead to the most meaningful pieces for me
0: by you said landscape is the is the human control of nature by that do you mean that your landscape i mean the the physical landscapes are curated or do you mean like our our perception our view of landscape is how we how we take it in is how we are controlling our our view of nature i guess so so
1: i think it's both i mean you know if um if you're defining landscape, I think that there's probably several definitions that are argued upon, but for for me, a landscape is definitely something that's been curated. That's been kind of formed by, by man. Otherwise it's, 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 you know, it's natural. And whether that formation is physical through, you know, either creating a garden, creating a pathway, you know, moving rock, moving earth, or like you say, through our perception, it's still framed by something. It's not sort of like in its raw, state um the same way you know if you were i, I mean in, in my opinion you could be in sort of the middle of a place and listening to the sounds and for me that's still music if you're sort of framing it and contextualizing it um so so yeah so i think that in answer to your question it can be both things um i know that's mm-hmm. sort of a uh a language sure, right to answer but but yeah no i i really think i think the important aspect is is the is the framing of either nature or sound in in either of the two cases
0: so i think the piece that you were probably going to talk about this more was um with and drift mm-hmm. is that right yeah definitely yeah. um because- so i was i was introduced to this piece um well actually it was this piece that how i was introduced to you as a composer um i was the i was one of the judges on a competition and heard this piece and just fell in love with it and the sound world that you have created is just it's i, I mean it's just so intoxicating Oh, thank so, you. yeah no problem <laughs> i mean what is what's the guiding principle for this piece what's propelling it forward
1: so in a lot of ways it's the same sort of like at least conceptually a lot like quiver this idea of a really slow moving but very powerful energy that's sort of buried beneath the surface Um, and once again it was um, inspired by a trip to a place in this case a bog in Estonia um, and coming from you know northeastern united states i'd never really been in a place like this um this you know just imagine a huge expanse um with you know sort of shrubby bushes but you're walking over a peat bog on these these plant these planks that have been set up by by humans and i mean the peat in there i i'm going to get the the rate incorrect but i think it's something like one centimeter every hundred years that it grows Mm -hmm. and um I know I'm going to be wrong on this, but I believe it. it it's something like a hundred meters. Like just imagine it's been growing for just and you know an unfathomable amount of time. Right. And for me, that that really slow growth, but knowing that that energy was sort of underneath the surface of this incredibly calm but beautiful, or I should say, and beautiful landscape, um, was really was really powerful. Um, and during this trip, I was also introduced to a biologist and amateur slash professional now sound recordist um, named Velio Runel. And he uh, really just took me and a couple other students on some field recording trips, one of which was to this bog and brought some hydrophones um, that in a very um, sort of, cursory way allowed us to hear this energy underneath the surface and in this case in the form of the bugs that were living in this in this bog um so that's where a lot of the inspiration from the sound world came these kind of like really clicky um sort of just fast moving moving semi-rhythmic sounds and textures that I first heard on these field recording trips um so that was sort of the jumping off point for that piece
0: this piece and um to some extent in quiver um you use a number of multiphonics in the uh in in the clarinet mm-hmm. and i'm wondering i'm wondering what your workflow is like for being able to hear and incorporate those sounds into into a piece for like a larger ensemble you know because i just personally i find it very difficult to to try and even get my wrap my head around that sound in order to place it into an ensemble where there are other elements trying to play off of it or play with it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's tough and I'll be the first to admit that I'm like not as skilled as some other composers that I know of kind of like containing all of those sounds just in my mind. Um, So for certain things I used recordings of the multiphonics and kind of layered them with guesstimates of what the texture would be. Um, But, you know, for certain passages, I just trusted my instinct and also trusted the performer that they would be able to produce these sounds um, using the instructions that I provided and, you know, did a lot of research using different clarinet method books and talking to performers to make sure that, you know, they would work on different clarinets and, and that it was easily, you know, producible. I definitely shy away from anything that's not fairly easy to produce. So in a lot of different, um, in the clarinet book that I use, I believe there is sort of a designation of this one is fairly stable versus unstable. And I, and I stick to the stable multiphonics for the most part.
0: Is that the, uh, Sparnay book?
1: So this, yes, this, um, for this or those two pieces, I used the Sparrne book um, mostly because that was what was available at the library in Estonia, and I fell in love with this book um, because I. Th- I mean, it's just for the bass clarinet, and I'm a right. huge lover of the instrument. Um, so to have a book dedicated to just the bass clarinet was really nice, and there's CD examples of some of the audio, so that was super helpful. Um, and then there was a really great clarinetist in Estonia at the time that I was able to try some of these things with to make sure they worked.
0: Yeah, I mean, having having the the player right there beside you is I, I find that because I just like you, I've uh, used the Sparne book and I've used those recordings and tried to layer them. Um, with you know, like import uh, sounds from Sibelius or something like that, and tried to layer the clarinet sounds on top of it, and it's just always. It seems like it takes a long time if you're just experimenting, right? You know, you don't have you don't have that like it to to just try something. It takes like ten minutes to set up, right? So if you have the person there, it seems like it works a little bit fast like the workflow goes a little bit faster
1: definitely and I actually do pretty much everything by hand and engrave at the end so I don't I like even just setting up a Sibelius file for this would be way too time consuming um so I know for for Quiver I a lot of it was just trust um and then the part where I used recordings from the Sparne book was the sort of multifonic section at the end um Mm -hmm. So since that was so so heavy in the clarinet, like these harmonics have to speak or else the final section just falls apart. That one I did, um, I did test, but, you know, for a lot of it, it was was simply trust. But for Endrift, that was the piece that I actually wrote for an ensemble that included this particular clarinetist. So when we did sort of a couple... um, just tests of different material, you know. Having her there was was really beneficial.
0: Like like you say, some of some of the sounds you're using, you know, in in the clarinet, if if they don't if they don't come out, ex- maybe not exactly, but pretty close to the way you were in imagining them, it can it can destroy the, maybe not destroy the piece, but it definitely like the piece suffers because of it. And I think oh, yeah. <laughs> in in and drift, you know, you're using sounds from percussion or or prepared piano. And I mean, how how specific are you with these sounds?
1: Um I'm not like I'm ugh, this is hard to say. I'm I'm not so specific that like you have to have the absolute correct piano pr- preparations um, you know, or else I don't want you to perform the piece in that sense. Right. Um, but certainly, you know, in, in the notes for that piece, you know, I define, I'm looking for a certain type of sound. I suggested using hairpins for the piano preparation. And then the pianist that performed it found a better solution or a di- I shouldn't say better, but a different solution using rivets that he got from a hardware store. And I, we ended mm, up using okay. that. And I mean, that's totally fine. I, I, Um, I'm always really excited to hear how performers are going to interpret something and have had a lot of wonderful experiences where they play or, you know, perform something that I wrote in a different way. And a lot of times it's a lot better than what I was originally (laughs) intending anyway. Um, you know, and I'm, I like these kind of happy accidents. Um, so, you know, if, if the piano preparations are slightly different, that's fine. As long as it's not, you know, A completely different sound world. I'm I'm going to be okay with it,
0: right? And I guess I guess I'm maybe this is just a personal thing, but you know I'm I'm so struck by a particular sound in one performance or recording that when you hear it in another and it slightly changes, so disarming. Like I'm thinking of the piano preparations that happen maybe two thirds of the way through. It's kind of in the middle range of the piano. and uh, like, just for example, you know the the Cage sonatas and interludes for prepared piano. There's only one recording that I really like mm-hmm. because because I've kind of imprinted the fact that the like those are the correct sounds yep. in that recording, <laughs> and yeah. I know that isn't right, you know. It and it isn't even what Cage intends. But we all do it, I th- I th-
1: right? I, th- and, I think everybody and, does and dis- that, yeah.
0: And but despite that knowledge that you know, what my brain is doing is not correct. It still affects my enjoyment of another performance or recording. I mean, do you have that too? Or are you very flexible?
1: I mean, I, I like to say I'm flexible because I think that's a better way to be. But I I, I mean, right. I, I think that if I'm being honest with myself, absolutely. I mean, I have older pieces where there's been a mistake in the performance, but that gets so ingrained in my you know, memory of the piece in in my when I I listen to recordings of the piece, that it becomes part of the piece. And when it gets performed by a different ensemble, and they play it correctly, I think, oh, geez, you know, they really messed that up. Um, Right. Which (laughs) they messed messed
0: up the mistake. Exactly.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Um, Which in certain instances makes things really tough for me. Um, I have a couple pieces that I've written for myself as a cellist um with electronics and I've never notated them because mm. I I just can't there, there's some mental block where I can't do it and so I get I just have to if I want to perform them again I have to rely on old performances and it sort of just creates this feedback loop of that same issue that, that you're you're describing um so I think yeah it, it's something that I like to say I'm flexible with, but you do kind of figure out like, oh, I really liked how they did it that one way. And if it goes a different way, yeah, it could be disappointing. Um, with And Drift, so far, it's only been performed by that one particular ensemble. Um, so I haven't had much of an issue yet, but I'm I'm hoping that it gets picked up by other ensembles and I, I will have to, you know, figure out how am I going to convey the same sort of sound world to a completely new ensemble that might have a completely different piano or, you know, a different percussion instrument and, and how, you know, how can we find a happy medium?
0: Right. I wrote I wrote a piece for string quartet and computer um, and it was, it was originally meant to be a ballet and uh, I had had the performance of just the music before to you know to put on a recital and also um to give to the choreographer um because it was like a 30 30 minute string quartet and um she got it and she choreographed you know choreographed the whole thing we're in rehearsals and there's this one particular part in the i think the first movement or something where the electronics just exploded at the premiere. Oh. You know, it, mm-hmm. it it did this, it did this like really high screechy thing that no one knew where that came from. And I've never been able to do it again. And she was <laughs> like, Rob, we were waiting for that. Where, where was that? <laughs> she, she had Korg, corrig- like oh, she no. really had specifically, you know, had that sound in mind to trigger something else. And I'm like, I, 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 I can't m- just make it do that that was a mistake we've got to have it you That's we hilarious. have to have it so what i did was I just took and it's part of the piece now um I took that sound from the recording like i literally just cut that out of the recording and then played that on the electronics you know in the performance just so it could it could be represented but yeah those those mistakes are great sometimes but it's it sucks when you can't reproduce those mistakes. Oh,
1: totally, and it and it's also I I find myself not relying on the mistakes, but relying on it's almost like a, a humanness to the performance. Yeah. That, that you well, what if you make a mistake or a mistake happens that's not so favorable? So I mean, it you know it it's a dangerous situation, but right. one one that I for me makes what we do so exciting. Um, yeah. I really, I mean, I think. I enjoy music and I like to write music that's a little bit messy um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I know it comes across as negative, but I think that for me, my music's not very polished and refined and that's something that I really like and want to um, exploit a bit in, in my, my composing process and, and what I'm creating because life is messy.
0: <laughs> right. It, it really is. <laughs> So can you tell me about Acoustic Uproar?
1: Yeah, um, that's, uh, so Acoustic Uproar is currently on hiatus. Um, it was a sort of, I, I don't even want to call it like a composer collective, but more of like a um, concert series that uh, my very dear friend and colleague, um, Leslie Hinger, another composer that studied at Boston University and is currently living in Calgary, Um where she's from. Uh, So we put that together In I think our first concert was in 2011 and it Mm -hmm. was just a really fun thing that we did for a number of years before she headed back to Canada and I headed off to Estonia um, where we just found really fun performers to program fun works by emerging composers. And we would have concerts in this really divey, awesome jazz bar in, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, then we graduated to a couple other larger venues. Um, but it was really just a fun setting for music that we thought was important to program that was outside of a university setting. Um, so in the beginning, before we got in trouble for it, we would, you know, give people a beer with their admission. Then we realized we couldn't hand out beer for free, um, at this (laughs) time. Um, and so we had to start charging for it. So, I mean, I don't know if the number of attendees dropped after that, but I don't actually think it did. Um, but yeah, it was just like a really fun laid back, um, concert series that we put together and is something that now that I'm back stateside, um, would like to keep doing, but it's definitely hard to, to put together without, um, my great companion who is on the Western part of North America right now. Um, but it's something, I mean, no matter where I am, I, I want to keep doing because for me, that's why we do this. It's it's to, you know, perform music for other people. Um, that's not to say I don't love listening to recordings. As a mostly introverted person, I do enjoy <laughs> sitting at home with my headphones. But um, there's something to be said for live performance. Um, I think it's an incredibly powerful community experience that needs to be happening in the community
0: well and also you know doing it at a you know non-traditional venue you break down a lot of the the stuffiness I guess of even like even going to a university even going to a black box theater or yeah. something you know there's still that the you know kind of the ceremony mm-hmm. of, of the concert whereas if you're in a bar you can stand up, you can drink, you can make a little bit of noise. So, you know, it kind of, maybe it it kind of limits the the types of pieces you can do at that venue. But at the same time, it's like, I have had some of my best um, musical experiences when I'm drinking. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, um, you know, that was our, our mission and our mandate totally was to get these types of concerts into more non-traditional venues. And I have to say there's people in Boston right now that are doing it in just way more interesting ways than we did. Uh, There's one concert series that's pairing up um, craft breweries with composers. So they have concerts at different breweries, which I think is a really interesting idea. Um, Is that,
0: is that Keith? um, Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I can't remember his last name. i always, I'm going to mispronounce either Kirchhoff or Kirchhoff. But yeah, Keith is great um, and does a lot of really great work. Um, So yeah, I think there's, um, there's a undercurrent of trying to get this music more into the community and out of the universities in Boston and and elsewhere in the U S and abroad. Um, But it's especially tough in Boston because there's so many universities and they have the money, they have the money. So, you know, it's tough but it it's happening and that's
0: exciting. So let's talk about Minim. Okay. So I loved I love the mix between recorded sounds and synthetic sounds in this piece. And on on your website it said this piece was kind of a collage of basically all the sounds you had you had recorded over a long period of time. Yeah. Um s- and uh, so this, the sounds come from, I, th- I think I read like 2006 to 2014. So that's a, that's a long period of, of recording sounds. And and I, I have a pretty decently sized sound, sound library as well. And I've always wanted to do something to them d- or do something with them. So how do you get back into those sounds without the immediacy and excitement <clears throat> of having just recorded them?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this piece, it was kind of out of necessity that I did that, um, and therefore had to recreate or create some of that excitement for sure. Um, so I wrote it when I got to Estonia for a commission for a festival, um, I, that I worked at since 2005 at the University of Richmond called Third Practice. And Third Practice is very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's sort of the, the place where I found contemporary music. Um, I went, I did my undergrad there and, um, had never really heard anything, you know, contemporary in either the acoustic or the electronic sense. Um, so this is an electroacoustic festival that's run by, um, my then, uh, composition teacher, Ben Browning, Um, and I wasn't going to be able to attend for the first time in almost 10 years, um, because I was in Estonia. So I thought, well, You know, they still want me to submit a piece. I'll write a tape piece. Um, I had not written a tape piece since 2006. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, I don't have too much time to do this. I don't have time to like go out and collect source material. Why don't I use this library of sounds that I brought with me? Um, So I think the excitement that I derived from these sounds was more just the, in the act of going back and listening to them and in a nostalgic sense and saying, Oh yeah, I remember, you know, this sound was created for this project that I did. And, and, you know, that brought back all the memories of that, you know, compositional process and all the little, you know, fun things that go along with the act of composing. Um, so, I mean, yeah. And in the beginning it was a lot of, I, I felt like I was kind of like an archeologist going through, you know, these sounds that I hadn't listened to or, or, had any, you know, kind of relationship with in years. And in a lot of cases, you know, the way that I used the sounds in the piece were different from the source material because they were heavily processed or, you know, um, sort of completely recontextualized. So in some senses, it was like finding a new sound anyway, because it was the way that it was used in the composition that it was intended for, for was so far removed from the source sound. It was like, finding something completely new. Um, So, I mean, it was a really, really interesting and I think worthwhile exercise that I would definitely recommend doing if it's something you've been um, contemplating. Um, I think that there's a danger of it, of, of creating a collage rather than a, than a composition that was something I was very aware of from the get go. So, I tried to think more compositionally you know I tried to really think about okay where how is the energy flowing in this piece you know where where do I want certain structural points to be and so it's not just like a long textural drone um so I was I was thinking a lot about that in addition to kind of like how am I going to to give these sounds you know a new life
0: right can you explain the title
1: um this title is a pretty lazy title um <laughs> <laughs> which i i don't know titles are so tough um yeah
0: yeah but that being said you you uh, you know looking through your work list like all of your titles are very descriptive uh-huh. and also and also very short which is great because i the, there's there's something about having those like you know, like, and drift. I love that title.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so
0: so you, it, even though it might be tough for you, you seem to be pretty good at it.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, in some cases, titles come before the piece is written. In some cases, they come much later. Um, In a lot of cases, they're, stolen from either some piece of fiction or poetry that I'm reading. and drift is um, a very small fragment of a Beckett poem that really resonates with me. Minim is not that poetic. Um, I was just trying to find words that spoke to me that sort of mean like a fragment, or um, a small measure of something. And um, a minim is, I believe, some sort of unit of measure, you know, I, I created this title in 2014, so I don't remember the, but I think it has something to do with, um, a small measure of a liquid. Um, so that's where that title came from. So not, not very, um, grandiose or anything like that. Um, I mean, there's the very, you know, I think most people just assume it's the, you know, British, um, designation for a half note, which has nothing to do with, Um, at okay. all. <laughs> yeah. I also liked it because I think Minim as a sound is kind of nice. Um, Minimum. yeah. Yeah. And it, it's just a small, short title and, um, yeah, it's it stuck. And that's how that happened.
0: It's also a word that's, um, uh, palindrome.
1: Yeah, that was, um, I mean, sort of typographically interesting yeah. to me. Um, but nothing that, um, is musically relevant
0: in that aspect so 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 none of that made it okay
1: no i'm sorry there i i didn't can't reveal any sort of secret key to the to the piece or um you know my compositional process through that title it's just an interesting word that i liked (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: great I think the pieces I've heard of yours definitely live on the spectrum from 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 your two adjectives, gritty to gossamer. Mm-hmm. Is this one of the driving forces for your music, kind of traversing that spectrum? I, I mean, I guess I'm, what I'm after is your your motivation to use the sounds in the way you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that exercise of trying to think of three adjectives to describe my music that, you know, you asked for was a really tough thing for me because I think my music lives in these very disparate places that I'm trying to find a middle ground for. Um, it's sort of this, you know, love of kind of gritty, textural, noisy sounds, and also, um, a sort of nostalgic longing for melody. Um, and i think that comes from my former life as a performer um so finding ways to you know create music where these two worlds can coexist in a meaningful way i think is a big challenge and it's kind of been my main project um so that that's my motivation it, it's finding finding you know meaningful ways to to combine these interests that I have. So it's kind of a selfish motivation, but but that's <laughs> but that's what it is.
0: Okay, last question. It's uh it's a big one. Okay. How did you how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life?
1: Ooh. And I mean, yeah, that's an ever-changing question too. Um so I I grew up in a sort of unique place um in the middle of the woods there was this kind of like clearing where there were 11 houses one of which was my parents and the rest were different family members um, and I was just I just remember being captivated by sound as a as a kid you know playing in the woods it, looking back it was an amazing experience at the time I thought you know oh this is kind of lame I want to live closer to my friends <laughs> um so I mean that was really important to me but at the same time I was also um getting really into playing the cello. I was very lucky to have a family that supported that and I stuck with it um throughout school played um in different uh sort of ensembles and then um in high school started playing in like the quintessential garage band playing guitar Um, which led me to work in the studio um, as both a session musician on cello and then just recording with different bands. And that totally opened my mind to what was capable with electronics, um, having never really experimented with it before. Um, So when I finally got to university, I thought, hey, I want to work at the university recording studio. And in order to do that, I had to take a computer music class and that was a computer music composition class rather than, you know, a studio techniques class. So that sort of, mm-hmm. um, opened the door to electronic music and I was hooked. Um, I just, I thought it was incredible what could be done with sound. And I thought, I want to try that. And I tried it and I liked it and I got more performances and thought this is really fantastic. And one thing led to another and somehow I'm getting my doctorate in composition. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of hard work, but also just luck in terms of being at the right place at the right time. My, my undergrad institution was a really small liberal arts school, but it just happened to have a fantastic composer on faculty who was running an electroacoustic music festival. Um, The Chamber Ensemble 8th Blackbird was also in residence there. So as a completely new composer, I was able to test some of my music out and write pieces for, you know, a Grammy Award winning and, you know, just crazy good set of musicians. Um, So that was, you know, really lucky and um, gave me opportunities that had I been elsewhere, probably wouldn't have been available to me. Um, And I think, you know, the thing that keeps me going is just, the excitement about just building new worlds, um, with composition and, and meeting and meeting some really amazing people along the way. Um, I think composing can be a very lonely and in a lot of ways, selfish, um, task and, uh, the act of meeting other performers and other composers and, and getting to travel and, um, you know, your music performed and hear the music of, of other people being performed is, is really special and something that shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, so, so those opportunities keep me going as well.
0: That's great. Um, I think that's a good place to end it actually.
1: Okay. Sounds good.
0: Um, so where can people find you on, on the interwebs and, and elsewhere?
1: Um, so my website is www.heatherstebbins.com, which is currently being updated. Uh, updated by my wonderful partner in life um, <laughs> who is a fantastic web developer very busy which is why my website has uh, been ignored for a little bit on, on my end I have not been updating the content but I'm going to once it gets its update um, Got it. but also on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash stebbins. um I am on Twitter, which you can link to from your Twitter account, which I know you've um been doing, but I'm not a very yep. good tweeter. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not very active there. But yeah, every every so often I'll, you know, throw my hundred forty characters out into the world and, and nice. feel sorta of silly about it. So
0: and see how it plays. Yeah, All exactly. Right,
1: cool. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.